We are going to begin. Well, my name is Mickey, not Casey. And this is a co-taught class. So for the seven weeks of this class, I will do three, he will do three. And then if you noticed in the schedule, that was at least in the bulletin, the last, the, the last week, the seventh week is actually going to be a Q&A where both of us will be up, be up here. But glad that you're with us. There's notes on that back table, but you may already know that. Do you want to grab one of those so that you can see uh, what we're talking about? Last week may have felt like a little bit of a fire hose, but it's not bad. It's actually good for us to realize that the issues happening in our culture didn't just happen overnight. Now, we might not have seen all the trajectories or the trends. We might not have felt it. We might not have been in the conversations, but it's been going on for a long time, and that's just important to know. But we wanted to, the moment after we talked about what's happening in our world, and you got a 300 years in 30 minute kind of overview, we wanted to answer the question, what does or must the church believe about sexuality and gender? Like we need, we need to say, all right, this is what the world is saying and doing. What does God say or do? Because ultimately we want to align our lives in every way to God's holy word. We want to be under scripture. And it's not going to be a shock to know that this issue, sexuality and gender, is extremely divisive, not just in our culture, but in the global church. Denominations are splitting and separating. People are leaving denominations because they do not feel that such denominations are being biblical in regard to this particular issue. They're not debating over baptism and Lord's Supper. They're not debating over substitutionary atonement or some of those theological things. They're debating over this. What do we do about homosexuality and gay marriage? What do we do about transgenderism? What is the biblical response? And there are numerous churches that will be in full support of all of these things. And, and that the question is, what ultimately and where ultimately do we stand? So, so just even when we say that, we realize that not every denomination is going to agree with what we're going to say or do what we're going to prescribe. But we think the position that we have, which, by the way, is in our bylaws, is the historic, traditional, biblical position. And we need to go beyond that and what, what it means to respond and interact and live in this culture. But we wanted to be clear on what the Bible says about that. But as always, uh, we're going to do this every week. At, at the top of your notes, there's a little covenant of community that Casey and a few others wrote because legitimately, brothers and sisters, because there was concern. Hear this from me. There was concern that some of us might respond in a way toward others in an offensive way just by the way we might ask questions or by the comments we might have. And as much as we want to be biblically grounded on doctrine, our posture toward the world, toward those with whom we disagree, has to look different than just the polarization and the kind of enemy attack mode that we actually see displayed by the world around us. Jesus was literally treated like a jerk, but he was never a jerk. He was slapped in the face. He was punched and beat. He was mocked, 
continually. He was the smartest guy in the room, and he was treated like he was an idiot, and you just never saw him retaliate. Yet I worry that Christians, in name at least, in the name of our tradition, have been the biggest jerks, the most pompous, the least humble, and just kind of repentant for our culture of almost any group, or at least it, it, it matches the extremes on other sides. That cannot be us. So you need to know that there, there are not just could be, there are people in our church family who are wrestling with this, who have family members wrestling with this, children, grandchildren, neighbors, close friends, siblings. That just changes how you deal with it. That doesn't change what is biblical truth and what, the, what Scripture says is authority, but it, it does change the way I speak. So if you would, you've got that covenant of community at the top of your notes there. You're reading it with me. I'm not reading it to you. We're reading it all together so that we, this can be what we commit to as Christians here at Hope Church uh, in the remainder of this class. Let's read. Lord, help us by your Spirit to hear and see your word rightly and wisely apply. Listen actively with a desire to learn, especially viewpoints not our own. Speak with grace only to build up and encourage one another. Honor all people and see all as made in your image. Love all people, even when it is hard just as Jesus Christ would do. Thank you for that. Let's pray, and then we'll jump in. Father, help us to think about this. Thank you for the spot on our Sunday morning between worship to have a class to think deeply about hard things. Give all of us wisdom and insight, not just to the principles that we're going to learn, but also the postures we should adopt. So, Lord, we're not just asking that you work in them, whoever the they or them is. We ask that you work in us. Start with us. Work in us to make us like Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let me start with this. How important should the issues surrounding sexuality and gender be for Christians? So, so for some Christian denominations and groups, they're not going to want to say it's very important. How do we know what's important? I mean, I've addressed this, or we have as a church addressed this briefly before, but I thought it would be helpful to give a little bit of that to you now. There, there are four ways you can rank doctrines, levels of priority, and I list them there for you in your notes. First rank doctrines are essential to the gospel itself. Like it, you remove the doctrine, you, you lose the faith. Like I think of it like the body. Uh, you, you, you don't have use of a pinky, real bummer. Like real bummer when you're drinking tea, it's just not as cool, right? But in reality, you're gonna live. Lose your heart, you got a problem. So when you're thinking of first rank issues, we're not just talking about everything you think is a hot and prime topic. We're thinking about the most important things. Essential, there's that word. First rank would be essential to the gospel. An example would be the deity of Christ. You get Jesus wrong, you actually don't have Christianity. Second-rate doctrines would be not essential, but urgent. 
And they're urgent not just for the gospel, but for the health and practice of the church such that they frequently cause Christians to separate at the local church level, right? So you can all still be Christians, but if you decide like today to do baptism differently, right? We do what's called believer's baptism. We don't do infant or child baptism. That is not a heart, but that is a leg, right? You're going you're gonna, to you're gonna, you're gonna walk differently with that being adjusted, so you're going to live just fine, and those are our brothers and sisters, but we're just going to have to agree to disagree to say that really affects how we even do church, which is why you have very gospel-centered Presbyterian churches and very gospel-centered Baptist churches, and they're all Christians, they're all disciples, they're all going to be with Jesus, but they're going to do things a little different with, with things that are urgent but not essential, and they can all have prayer meetings together and do evangelism together and cooperate together. In fact, they pro- we probably should do that better and more often but the, because it's not about essentials. It's about just urgent for life and practice. But it's important to know. By the time we move down to third rank doctrinal issues, they're not essential. They're not even urgent, but they are important. Like they matter for how you live or how you think about the world. So I frame it this way. Third rank doctrines are important to Christian theology but not enough to justify separation or division among Christians. So here you think of like the end times views. This is a great example. We have actually several different end times views in this church. Of course we should and do. That actually is a sign of health. If we had to agree on every single thing, you would be sitting here with just a couple people. Right? Like literally, it'd be like, oh, he doesn't like fishing. I'm done with him. Right? Like it would get real narrow real quick. Because if it, because remember, you're not at the center of it, and they have to agree with you. So third rank issues are important. Like do, does the pre-tribulational rapture make a difference for how we think about the world? Does thinking the kingdom is only in the millennium and not in part happening now affect how we think of mercy ministries? and social engagement in culture, it totally changes how you think about the world and how you live in it. But it is not essential or even urgent. It's just important. And we can actually agree to disagree on those things. We agree to disagree on something like one of the ordinances, then we actually are doing church differently. We agree to disagree on the essentials. We actually have different religions. You see the difference? Finally, fourth-ranked doctrines are quite simply unimportant to our gospel witness or ministry collaboration. They, it's not that they're unimportant to everything. Like it might be important to you or it might be important to our church's history and tradition and culture, but it ultimately has no effect on how you minister. It has no effect on how you collaborate. Again, a great example would be worship styles. Like you can, you can have hymns or you can have contemporary music or you can have a variety of things and it doesn't affect that Jesus is proclaimed and it doesn't affect you collaborating with other people. It just simply ends up having a bit more of the preferential side. It's kind of the way we've done things, the way we like it. And to be fair, it's often determined by our culture. If you were in an all African-American church in the deep South, I guarantee you their worship would look a little different. If you were worshiping with a bunch of uh, Brits in Northern England, They could all look white-skinned like most of the people in this room, but it's going to look a little different. If you're in the middle of Africa 
with Christians who hold the exact same doctrines as you, I guarantee you it's going to look a little different and go a little longer. Right? And I'm telling you that, that, that now, now we're getting to, it's not even important, has no impact on anything to do with other than Jesus is glorified, we should totally worship, in fact, we should be gleaning from one another in those things, and we need to be careful about all of that. So there are some categories. So now we ask the question, all right, what do we do with sexuality and gender? Because if you put it in category four or five, or three or four, Actually, you can just simply say, we agree to disagree. If you put it in category two, well, now you're actually kind of separating by church. If you're putting it in category one, actually makes it essential to the Christian faith. So what do you do? Well, I actually would like to suggest Sexual and gender are of essential importance because they are rooted in first-rank doctrines. Meaning, you'd have to change essential doctrines to implement certain views of sexuality and gender. Let me give you a couple examples. Number one would be the doctrine of God. As creator, God has made us in a specific way with a specific purpose. Our createdness is not just for our own defining. We are the creature. He is the creator. And we have a responsibility to acknowledge our givenness, our creatureliness, our createdness. In fact, to be honest, our creatureliness is one of the hardest things for us to accept. Now, it might not be for you in sexuality and gender, but I bet it is in, to, in regard to your lot in life. I bet in high school or junior high, you're like, I'd like to be the prettiest, or I'd like to be the tallest, or why can't I touch the rim? Or why do my shots bank off the bank board and never get close to the circle? Or why is math so stinking hard? And not for so-and-so. Like, accepting our creatureliness is hard. How about this? You get a little older and you get a few more aches. Or you see loved ones sick and die. It is hard to accept your creatureliness. It is hard to let God be creator and you to be creature. So don't just think it's, well, it's the gender thing. I accept that I'm a boy and I don't try. Uh, yeah, that's great, that one works for you. There's a few more categories, too. But if you start messing with the creatureliness of a person, you start messing with the creator. And that gets pretty serious. Here's a second doctrine affected, the doctrine of anthropology. Now, the doctrine of God's a simple one. Anthropology is just a fancy word for humanity, personhood. The Greek word anthropos means humanity or person. God made and therefore defined humanity as male and female. Like he calls it that clearly. Where I'm not going to spend time in the text. I don't think that needs to be the argument I make today. I'm just, I mean, if you come up and say, 
show me Genesis 1 and 2. I'd be happy to sit down with you and show you from Genesis 1 and 2 the male-female. But it is blatant. I want to tell you, that's actually pretty cool. Because he, he literally says, the, the text a couple times says male and female. Notice how that includes both genders in a world that has been dominated by only one for a long time. From the beginning, God never said man or male. He said male and female. And he says it specifically twice. That's significant about the equality, the mutuality, the necessity and interrelationship of both male and female. It speaks a lot, not just to the biology of the family, but the necessity of human relationships in the family unit by God's design. But the moment you start messing with male and female, you're going back to Genesis 1 and 2 and making radical changes. And you're not just, at that point, you're not just bumping into God as creator, you're bumping into doctrine of what it means to be human. And being human includes being either a male or a female, as God designed. Again, there's other questions to talk about in that. I'll get to some of those today, but I, it just needs to be stated clear that the Bible is, is absolutely clear. I mean, literally from the opening creation accounts of male and female, he made them and their interrelation and their mutuality and the necessity of them both. You start throwing that around and playing with that, you just change the doctrine of, what, of, of humanity and personhood. The moment you've changed that, you're completely adjusting core aspects of the Christian doctrine and faith. Here's a third, the doctrine of sin. The issues of sexuality and gender are given specific parameters in Scripture that are rooted in the fall of humanity. Scripture specifically describes ways your body should or should not be used, way your gendered relationships should or should not be used. Sometimes they're only implicit. Like it's assumed from the command, other things can be assumed from the, the command or the description, but many times it's explicit. Things are specifically condemned. Like a man marrying a woman and not another man. A woman marrying a man and not another woman. Listen, there, there is no interpretive debate about whether that is actually stated. To be completely clear. It's just whether we're just going to obey that or not. There's no great mystery there. There are some texts that are, what's the thorn in the flesh of Paul? No clue. Like uh, the, 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 the sin that leads to death in 1 John. Good question. Like there's a whole bunch of, the, who's the beloved disciple in John? And what do you do with the millennium in Revelation? Fair enough. Those are tough topics. Man marrying a woman, woman marrying a man. There's no debate. There isn't one Bible verse that would confuse that in any way in, in positive terms and the negative prohibitions against breaking that structure is all over the place, Old and New Testament. It's clear. In fact, to deny that is to deny the reality of sin. In fact, Scripture would say that that actually is part of the fall, is that we begin to take as creatures, we take the rights and authorities and freedoms of the Creator, that's out of bounds. Now again, just to be clear, you can do this with a whole lot of things in regard to your body. 
and regard your relationships beyond just sexuality and gender. You can. So we, we, could, we could hone in on sexual and gender all day and then blind ourselves to the way we actually do that in other ways with a whole lot of other sins. I'm just saying for the purpose of this class and this topic, it is clear. There's no debate. Finally, the, the last reason I would want to say sexuality and gender are of essential importance because they're rooted in first-ranked doctrines is because the gospel message itself requires the wedding between a groom, Jesus, and his, church, and his bride, the church. Like even the gospel account necessitates the wedding between a bridegroom and a groom. Meaning the structure of the created world is literally a sign, a gracious sign, like one of the miracles of Jesus, to a bigger and truer reality in the cosmic domain of God's very existence and relationship to us. So if you mess with sexuality and gender, you mess with Christianity. There's a book written by, I can't remember if Casey mentioned this guy or not, a guy named Machen, good old Presbyterian brother on the East Coast, probably a Steelers fan prior to the Steelers, but let's say he'd be a Steelers fan. But he was part of Princeton Seminary when Princeton Seminary began to get rid of the authority of Scripture. And they, all these conservative faculty, I think about a third of the Princeton Theological Seminary faculty broke away from Princeton when they denied things like inerrancy and the authority of Scripture, and they ended up starting a school called Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia. So guys like Machen and others were part of this founding. And Machen wrote a book called Christianity and Liberalism back in 1925. I remember reading it, I don't know how many years ago, but it wasn't 1926 or 7, I guarantee you that. <laughs> Uh, I probably read it in the early 2000s, so I was a little 75 years late. But he basically, he's talk, he, he basically tries to say, you actually need to separate true gospel Christianity from versions of Christianity which are actually liberalism. He doesn't mean liberalism in like cable news, political liberalism. He's talking about they've changed Christianity. They, they, they've, they've gotten rid of the essence of the faith. They've taken first-ranked doctrines, and they've, they've minimized those, and we just need to be aware of that. Now, let me, let me address some objections before, before you, you, you might throw yours out or whatever they may be. Here's some uh, briefly addressed. Some may say, well, it's not in the creeds. Like, how can you say it's essential if it's not in the creeds? Well, the creeds don't talk about everything, not even everything essential. The creeds reveal the scaffolding of the gospel, not the full gospel message and its corollaries. It's more like scaffolding. It's not the whole building. Summary. Here's another. The Bible does not address all the sexuality and gender issues we are dealing with today. You're right. It doesn't deal with a lot of other things either. It doesn't deal at all with crankshafts and pistons or Facebook or the internet it doesn't deal with a lot of those things. The Bible's not a manual for sexuality and gender, but it does address from every angle things in relation to the created world that totally touch upon sexuality and gender. Like it circles around it enough that you get the point. 
Buddy, how about this? Christians disagree about this. Like, why would you make this first rank essential if Christians disagree? Well, part of me want to say, no, they really don't. There is no one in the history of the church until recently who actually disagreed on this issue. I mean, not anybody of note. There would be no major denomination, nobody in all three major traditions. This is a novum, a Latin word meaning it's a brand new animal. People disagree on a lot of things, authority of scripture and various practices, but this is a whole new realm of disagreement. This is a difference not just in degree, this is a difference in kind. There can be no disagreement on the principles of human sexuality and gender from a Christian perspective, but there can be disagreement on posture. And that's some of the things that we'll talk about uh, here as a class. There can be disagreement on posture. Like some Christians, uh, you might have two groups of Christians and they both agree in the historic, biblical, traditional view of sexuality and gender. One is on attack mode, and that's probably categories we've used before, we'll use again, purity from and defense against. That's probably their cultural posture. Like you can totally agree on the principles, and some of you want to be letter writing, protesting, shouting across the street, and the others are praying and weeping. Now we have reasonable discussions of what disagreement could look like. I don't think it's on the principles. I think it's more on the posture. And part of this class actually needs to be on our posture. Because it's not like our church or our denomination or the churches we fellowship with, to be completely clear. None of them are questioning the historic biblical view. It's in our bylaws, what I'm saying to you now. I mean, it's abbreviated. But I'm just telling you what you've already voted on that I would agree with, and nobody here can change without a congregational vote of 75%. So what should or must we believe? We've already agreed on that. What we haven't agreed on, most likely, is what we're going to do about it. And that's the part that actually probably needs, fair enough, we needed a class to talk about what should or must. It probably needs a little bit more reflection. Because there can be a whole lot of anger whole lot of rage and a whole lot of yelling and I guess the question that this class also wants to wrestle with is is that the posture that Jesus prescribes so this gets this gets to the the next part I'll, I'll get through what I'm going to say and then we'll leave a few minutes at the end for some questions what I just said prefaced well what's next in your notes. Questions of belief are of first importance, but hear this. Practice and contextualization quickly follows. Contextualization is taking those, that's a big fancy, actually it's a missiological term. It's taking what you know to be true and putting it in the garb and in the realm of the lived in world. And anyone who goes to another culture has to contextualize, right? They have to figure out how to navigate a different culture. So one of the biggest challenges that we are going to face is the impulse of almost everybody around us, and it's going to grow, is going to be diametrically opposed 
to what you in principle would say is a first order issue, thus saith the Lord. But I don't think we're going to have to be debating here. If the, I mean, we're not, we're not going to have to be debating whether it's okay for a man to marry a man or a woman to marry a woman. There'd be, there'd be, there is no impulse in any direction other than that historic biblical faith. That's not the issue that actually probably needs the most addressing. The biggest addressing we need to do is how do we contextualize this in a world where it is constantly in your face. My, my son and I visited University of Wisconsin. had a great visit. My son Ben and I, because he's looking at environmental science, wildlife ecology. Basically, he doesn't want to sit in a cubicle. He wants to be out indoors in God's creation. Good biblical reasons for wanting to be in creation. And we go to the College of Agriculture and Life Sciences at University of Madison. We're sitting there on Friday late afternoon, and all the people introducing themselves introduce themselves by their genders. And that is going to be the norm. I would have never, I wasn't even thinking about gender. I wasn't even thinking about gender. Now, we need to talk about that more, and we will. And again, remember the covenant we just read. I'm just describing the culture. I'm saying that is the norm. It is a sign of not being bigoted. It is being inclusive. It is admitting that gender is something that's fluid, and people are wrestling with that, and you want to be as acknowledging as you can be. That's what they're, that's what they're assuming. Their posture is actually one of hospitality, inclusivity, generosity, so that anybody who might feel excluded would be included. It's like, it's, to them, it's no different than saying where all the bathrooms are or handicap access in case someone uses a wheelchair. It's not excluding those that might need help because of a wheelchair or a walker. You would just say, by the way, there's handicap seating, there's a handicap bathroom there. And again, none of us would even blink at that because we don't want to just be thinking about the able-legged people. We want to be thinking about people who are in a wheelchair too. And for somebody to say, oh, by the way, there's seating up here for wheelchair and there's wheelchair accessible bathroom. Like, That's great. That's so inclusive. They're doing the same impulse with gender. Now, you and I may totally have a different view biblically of what is gender and how is that defined. But that'll be the norm. We, we visited the University of Minnesota, same thing happened, exactly the same. No different. So a couple, couple thoughts on moving from principles to practice and contextualization. First is this. We may not all agree, you and I, or you, you, you and one another, on the posture we should adopt, right? So some of you hear that University of Wisconsin story, and honestly, I could hear, them, I could hear the rumblings, by the way. <laughs> you can't hold it in. Why? Don't, don't, don't answer the question. Keep rhetorical. What angers you? Again, rhetorical question. What angers you? Do you get just as angry with materialism? Why is it with gender you get so angry? Do you get just as angry when they don't even recognize the Lord's day and they treat Sunday like a second Saturday? Do you realize the affront that is to the Creator? He literally designed the world with a day of pause for worship. Like the world, go to Genesis. The same passage, by the way, that talks about male and female talks about the Lord's day. The same text. Yet you and I ourselves can be frivolous on what we do on Sundays. 
and don't think anything of it. But the same text talks about gender and blah, 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 blah. We get upset. Why? Why does that upset you more? Because I, I worry that you and I have been influenced by the last 50, 60, 70 years of culture war. And we just need to be aware of that. Because actually, the bent of the woman who was recognizing different genders at Madison was actually one of hospitality and kindness. That's actually what it was. She was super kind. Ben and I spoke to her after. Super nice woman. She was actually being kind and hospitable. She doesn't understand how God created male and female. Or she doesn't believe it. Or she outright rejects it. Fair enough. But that actually was a posture of hospitality. Why would you see it differently than that? How we come at this, whether it's purity from or defense against or faithful presence within, will say a lot. And this is categories we've been working on as a church. And this is a beautiful test case. But here's another thing when it comes to practice and contextualization, and this, this one is important. We do not move backwards from experience to theology. Meaning we don't even let our own feelings or feelings of our body tell us what theology therefore says about who we are. Now that's hard to do in every issue of our creatureliness. But at least in regards to sexuality and gender, it is often argued of ex from experience and then it moves to theology. And the theology that, it, that rejects my experience must be wrong. Brothers and sisters, a true biblical theology rejects my experience all the time. I do not always want to submit to my creator. I do not always want to love one another. I do not always want to love my neighbor. I do not always want to love my enemy. If I base it on how I felt, I would never respond appropriately to what God's word would say. Theology would never drive the actions that I do or the posture that I have. We contextualize according to the full and under the full authority of scripture, which serves as our lens and guide. Here's the third thing. We understand, this, is the, this may be new to you, but you'll notice... I've used sex and gender synonymously, but they no longer are. That's why I think, I haven't checked my license recently, but I think when I got it renewed, it, I think it might say sex now instead of gender. I mean, that's a, that's a big change. In the academic world, again, if you think this just popped on you when, from the DMV in Illinois, you, you, again, it, this goes back before your great-great-grandparents. This was all moving in that direction as Casey explained last time. But there is a difference between sex and gender. Now, we, write, we, we, we can appropriately in this context use them synonymously, but they would not be synonymous at the University of Wisconsin. They would not be synonymous at a lot of workplaces. Sex is that creaturely reality. Gender is often more culturally. Now, now to be fair, this is true in all different cultures. If my dad was in Japan on a business trip and a colleague grabbed his hand as they were walking after dinner. My dad is my size. <laughs> and was walking next to a five foot one man who grabbed his hand and he'd been warned. 
This was back in the 80s. He'd been warned this could happen. It's a sign of trust between business partners. And when the man grabbed his hand, he was communicating that the deal was going to go through. When my dad worked for a company called Hitachi, which isn't out of Cleveland. <laughs> and he was so uncomfortable. Because when he was at Guilford High School, I don't think any man ever grabbed his hand. In fact, if a man grabbed your hand now after communion, imagine that. You just took communion and you're walking out and the man felt a bond with you as brothers in Christ and he says, could we hold hands into your cars? What would you do? What if that man was Japanese? What if it was a Japanese family? that just moved from Tokyo, and after communion, every week, they grab hands and walk to the cars. You would be hiding in the baptismal, <laughs> or pull the fire alarm, or whatever you need to do, because you're so uncomfortable. Is that biblical or cultural? Cultural. So there's a whole lot of things regarding gender that's very cultural. In fact, even a lot of our discussion of roles in families which have somehow been given a kind of a biblical stamp on them, are actually more cultural than biblical. I, I remember one book that was offensive to me was Wild at Heart, which wanted young boys to punch their bullies in the stomach. I'm telling you, I, I, it was fully loaded with somebody who'd grown up watching Arnold Schwarzenegger and Sylvester Stallone, not somebody who read about Jesus. It fits very well in a robust, man-centered America. Wouldn't have worked in another culture. And it sold, I think, over a million copies. And it flooded churches like ours. Now, sociologists, therefore, for that reason, have separated the category of sex and gender. Sex deals biologically, male or female, gender, actually varies based on culture. You see the difference? So how do you separate a man in Tokyo and a man in Rockton? They both are biologically male, sex male, but gender-wise, there's a whole lot of different rules. There's totally different expectations, totally different assumptions about how you interact, what it means in a family with a woman or your wife, what it looks like in your home. All of those are different. And you go to Christians in those cultures and you'll see all those differences as well. Minus the fact that they're going to have biblical prescriptions for the things that are clearly biblical. And the Bible even says, is it five or six times to greet one another with a holy kiss? Which of you have done that today? Probably not many. Not for, it wasn't on the lips, by the way, so calm down. <laughs> So we might be able to distinguish between gender roles and practices, but, and then when it just comes to something like our sex biologically, Phyllis Bird wrote a statement regarding our sex that is important. And it says that sex is the constitutive differentiation observable at birth and encoded in our genes 
essential to the survival of the species. You think about that? And basic to all systems of socialization. It plays a fundamental role in the identity formation of every individual. It must consequently be regarded as an essential datum in any attempt to define the human being and the nature of humankind. Now that's sex. And we often equate them as sex, male and female, and gender. But just be aware, if you're going to engage with this culture, they have separated the two. And there's some truth in that reality. I haven't held anyone, any man's hand in a long time besides my boys. That's it. And I'm not planning to today. <laughs> but if you ask me, okay. But we can at least be aware of that difference of creaturely and culturally. And just be aware of that. That's part of the discussion here. That's part of the discussion. Finally, the, the last, when it comes to contextualization, and this would be a truth, and this is why this is so important for us, the church, as an ambassador for the gospel, must be promoting true human flourishing, not just regarding the soul, but also the body. Like you and I are in communion with our creator, and we must declare, not just to our children, but in practice and in posture toward the world, what it means to flourish as a human. And the argument would be, God designed the world to have a man marry a woman, and a woman marry a man. And that is human flourishing. And when the world or a culture doesn't acknowledge that, there will be breakdown and chaos. So, does that make you angry when you see that, or does that break your heart? Breaks your heart, doesn't it? Because they actually don't understand or decide to disbelieve. Or 2 Corinthians 4.4, the God of this world has blinded the eyes of the unbeliever. Or Romans 1, they, he literally gives them over. Form of judgment on basic creaturely function. So do you want to yell at them? Want to rile them up? Get your billboards out? We can debate and talk about that, but I'd hope your first posture is, Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy on our culture, on our country, on our sons and daughters and our grandsons and granddaughters. As we see a world that is literally in the face of God, rejecting their creatureliness. I'm going to end with a quick summary that will flesh out more, but I'm, I give you a, it's not, notice it's not a the Christian ethic, it's a Christian ethic. By ethic I mean here are some general principles that the church should or must believe. First, our sexuality, which I'll define as our embodiedness, the fact that we have bodies, our sex slash gender, and all that it means to be male and female is a precious gift from God. Christians acknowledge that. Second, sexual intimacy is properly experienced only between a man and a woman within the covenant of marriage. Could not be more clear in the Bible. It must be part of a Christian ethic. Third, God created the two Sexes, genders, male and female, even if cultures define gender roles differently. Now, we've already hit on that, talking about hand-holding in Japan 
Or like, a, I, I spoke at a men's retreat a couple years ago, and they're like, retreat is not for men. We call it a men's advance. Like, actually, the word retreat comes from medieval church, like separation, but hey, whatever. But again, they're thinking, these are guys raised watching Rambo First Blood Part Two. We advance, we're men. They're wearing camo. There's some kind of paintball because we're men. Again, okay, but most of that's not coming from the Bible. Most of that's actually coming from culture. In fact, be aware. Here's the thing. One of the primary things that has come out in recent years is the fact that the church has actually let powerful men abuse. Not just abuse the church itself, but actually abuse women. And it's now being ultimately described in lots of different cases. That abuse matches nothing like what Jesus prescribed. In fact, I, I even hear that. I've even, I, heard, I heard that recently, right? Ephesians 5 and submission and men lead. And, you know, the word lead is not in Ephesians 5. The word love is. When a man told me that recently, I said, why do you say lead and not love your wife? Like, what makes you think of power structures? Like, why is the first response when you're thinking about a biblical marriage is power structures? What is that? Brothers and sisters, that's not the directives clear from Scripture. That is culture, which is always fighting for power. Our Congress is fighting for power. Our, our, our executive and judicial branch right now is fighting for power. Companies are fighting for power. Nations are fighting for power. Everyone's fighting for power, and we've just been catechized by that, and we're now, genders are fighting for power. When you see Ephesians 5, here's what it says. Here's what it says. Okay, men, your job is to do exactly what Jesus did, which means you need to give everything. And the posture you have toward your wife is twofold, sacrifice and suffering. Now, what marriage wouldn't thrive? If that was the first impulse of the husband. And yet the one I constantly hear from people raised in the generations I've been raised in is leadership. Like how often is it that? The last shall be first and the first shall be last. Leadership, leadership, leadership. That's exactly what Google and Amazon will talk about. That's exactly what the business world will talk about. That is exactly what our culture is fighting over. And the church just opened the front door and let all of that in and catechize us. So now when we think about our marriage engagements, we think about leadership and power and authority. Who gets to make the final decision? When would there ever need to be a final decision? That both weren't equally wrestling with completely, sacrificially. So even if we can agree, all of that is to say, even if we must agree that God made two sexes, male and female, we have to also be able to say that when it comes to certain gender roles, man, a lot of those come more from Rambo than our religion. Fourth, every person, married or unmarried, man or woman, should be characterized by certain virtues that will guide and mold how they live out their gender, sex, 
and their sexual desires and practices. It is not a free-for-all. The Bible gives prescriptions regarding what it means to be a what it means to live out your sexuality, what it lives to live, means to live out your maleness or femaleness, that must be followed. Our experience doesn't override theology. It is hard to do, we almost do it, but a Christian ethic would demand such a thing. And last, a truly Christian sexual ethic is not just a list of rules and regulations but a vision of the good life and human flourishing that matches God's gracious design and all its benefits. Like, do you think of it that way? It's not just, well, what can I do or what do I have to say? It's a vision of the good life. You ever think of Christianity as a philosophy of a good life? Like, you know the creator, you're the creature, you know the design, you know exactly what you will need, and you align your life and your relationships and your family and your interaction at church and in the world with your creator to pursue a goal of human flourishing. The church has been yelling at distorted versions and not crying out that the world would see how God made male and female. And how God made husband and wife. And even with all different cultural gender refractions and, and, and expressions, that there are some realities of what it means to be male and female that are biblical, beyond cultural, that we must adopt. I'm, I'm already a little over, but I'm, but I'm willing to take a couple comments or questions before we close. Yeah. That's right. I, how is that? I, I find it, if, if I come up to you and say, my name is Julie and my pronouns are, well, how is that being courteous? It's being courteous because they are, so it's, it's a completely different world they're living in than like a biblical Christian. But they would argue that there are people dealing with gender identity and by including space for different expressions of gender, they are being hospitable to all those people. Now, again, interestingly, Christians usually get, yeah, maybe I should repeat the question. Julie's asking, how is that hospitable when somebody gives their gender? They're, they're trying to be aware of any possible expressive individualism in the room and accommodating to it. Now, again, you and I would say that's actually expressive individualism. That's an imminent culture, not a transcendent. That's a rejection of God's created order and creatureliness. And now, in some ways, you're imposing that on me. Now, I, when I introduced, when Ben introduced himself, he just said, I'm Ben from Roscoe. And I'm Ben from Roscoe. And I just like, I'm Ben's dad from Roscoe. I didn't give my name. Right? But I'm just saying, it's not like we were pressured to give that back, but they don't know who's in the room. I didn't hear one person say any other gender besides what you would have thought would be their biological genders. But they're, they're culturally trying to be accommodated. This is what we gotta talk about later though, by the way, Julie, because now you're in a culture where if you aren't sharing your gender, you look bigoted. And to them, it looks no different than if you didn't include African-Americans or you didn't include women, right? I mean, it, it, it looks almost no different to them. Now, whether that's right or fair and what our posture is, that's going to be for another day. But I'm just simply saying, in 
viewing it from the best possible lens, they're actually trying to be hospitable in case anybody there is dealing with gender identity. Now, they've got, they've got a skewed version, arguably, of how God created the world, but they're being accommodating to their theology of the good life. Their creaturely theology, they're trying to be faithful to. You and I, to our creaturely theology, are trying to be faithful. For 2,000 years, there wasn't much of an issue, except in theory. Now there's a clash. And how do those two sides work together? So me introducing myself to a group of younger people who might be doing this, and I say my name is Julie and my pronouns are he and her, which would be very awkward for me because yeah. I would just feel like, I don't know, whatever. Um, but I'm bringing myself, I'm allowing them to see me as not bigoted, and maybe I have a better chance of being accepted and maybe... Well, that's a good question. I mean, so Julie's asking then, is there, a, is, there, is there therefore some reasoning to offer our pronouns? This is highly debated. The majority of Christians' first impulses, no. Somebody who's argued strongly against it, and I think winsomely, her reasoning is Rosaria Butterfield. Uh, I think she's presented, so look up Rosaria Butterfield on YouTube, and she'll tell you why. And she's interesting. She's a, a former lesbian professor at Syracuse who is just a sweet, beautiful Christian now, she'd be totally against it for lots of ministry reasons. There are other Christians, a guy named Preston Sprinkle would be one, who actually thinks you're just accommodating, you're just acknowledging them as people. You don't have to make a moral statement on their identity. And you're not changing yours. They're, they're not forcing you to say something. Like my kids regularly in Hananiga give their, have to give their pronouns. I mean, could I say I'm, I'm, my pronoun is a princess because I'm the daughter of a king? Uh, not if you're fitting the cultural moment. If you're fitting a Disney movie, that would work great. <laughs> but you also want to be careful not to be offensive because what we want to do is mock that. Again, do we want to mock that? No. We don't want to, we don't, we don't want to mock that, but we also don't want to be... I don't want to be... We don't want to be dictated to. It, I'm just telling you, I think it's... So I'm not going to give you what I think yet on that topic. Because I think it's actually worth sitting in the middle for a little bit and saying, I want to be gracious. I want to understand. I want to have mercy. I, I, I want to be guarded with my heart. I want to be able to have a conversation with every possible person and not just yelling across the street with a sign. But I don't want them to impose on me that is if I can choose my own gender in some way. Right? Or, or that I'm denying the fact that God already gave me mine, why do I need to say it? Or, or whatever the case may be. I just want you to sit in that murky middle for a little while to feel the, feel the force of that. So maybe the lady at the college, that's what she was told to do by her sister. Fair enough. Ap so at what point, as Christians, how do we handle that? Like if we are instructed this is the way we are supposed to proceed, but we know... Yeah, yeah. So, so Mary's asking maybe, and that's fair enough. I mean, that woman could go to, a, go to a Presbyterian PCA church down the road, and this is what she's required. I mean, they also did an apology for stolen land to Native Americans and all those. I mean, they, they, there was a whole gamut. And Minnesota did the exact same statement. So you can tell there was a clear, this is what we're going to say as we're dealing at a, a research university. And fair enough, there's truth in all those things. But the reality is, we don't know if she holds that position or not. Do we, are we required to do that? Well, this is where it's not going to be 
something you can avoid for too long unless you're like retired and living out on a farm. I mean, the reality is, if you live in the city, if you work for a workplace, if you have an email signature for your company, if you're going to public schools and universities, at some point, that will either be expected or required. So then what is the Christian posture? Again, listen to Rosaria and listen to Preston Sprinkle. It's a fascinating discussion between the two of them. They don't actually talk to each other, but they do talk about each other in a, in a, in a she's a little bit harsher, he's a bit more gracious kind of way. But the, re, but the reality is these are tough issues. And Christians, let it sit there. Remember, we're learning to think biblically about. These are not easy topics. Our brothers and sisters like Preston and Rosaria completely agree with everything I just said to you right now. One of them will use gender pronouns, the other won't when talking to non-believers. Which one of them is wrong? What is the practice you should adopt? These are tough questions. If you think it's a microwave topic and in 30 seconds you got it, you're not thinking well enough. This is a crockpot issue. Crockpot it, let's keep thinking about it, let's keep processing as the weeks go on. You might even change your mind in four weeks or four months or whatever it may be. Think deeply. We've had enough years of surfacey stuff. Christians now need to turn the brain on, think deeply biblical, think deeply about posture, think deeply about contextualization, and live in the world, in a difficult world, with wisdom. Our kids are watching to see whether we're going to yell and scream or we're going to pray and think. Which one would look better? Pray and think. think. One more. Isn't Julie's approach opening the door on the subject, whereas your Ben's approach is sitting back and waiting and you can respond? Well, again, it was a little easier with Ben and me because we were just in an audience of like 80 people and we, it's not like they went, when they went around and people introduced themselves, no other person except the staff people ever said anything with gender. The rest of them all just said, I'm so-and-so from New Jersey and that was it. And I want to major in this. Uh, but there are deep questions to ask about that. And I would just say, whatever you came in with, let's have a posture of reflection, deep reflection. All right, let me pray for us because the nursery workers are at this point going to tar and feather me. <laughs> Father, thank you for the gospel of Jesus. Help us this week and this class to think through these issues well, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.